that is a spiritual experience within itself. <laughs> I didn't think it was coming out that way. I asked, oh, dear, here we go, see? Oh, Lord, and I can't do this. I just, I try real hard not to, and I don't think it's because I mind weeping, but I'd rather weep alone. It's the whole deal is I'm afraid my false eyelashes are going to fall out of my mouth. <laughs> you think a 70-year-old woman has eyelashes like this, you're crazy. <laughs> anyway, I'm an alcoholic, and my name is Beth. And it is an honor and a privilege to be here, and in truth it is. And I'm not just saying that because we say that, you know, you're expected to say that because if it wasn't an honor and a privilege, I'd probably tell you. Don't you love this? This is like church and state. It's, um, it's, a, it, it, it's a privilege and an honor for me to walk into any meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous anywhere. Um, you guys saved my life. And you're continuing to save my life on a daily basis. Um, I first, I want to thank the committee uh, for asking me, Dwight, calling me. Uh, he said that um, <laughs> he picked me up. Oh, he said he picked me up at the airport, and he said he was six foot four, and he'd have on a red shirt. So I trudged the happy road of the Cincinnati airport. <laughs> And I walked out, and, you know, you keep what you don't know where you're going. You're on trains, you're on, you're doing this, you're doing that. And I'm thinking, oh, Lord. And finally, I got to the end, and I walked out, and I looked for somebody six foot four. Well, he was squunched up, sitting down, reading the paper. <laughs> and that was my first meeting with Dwight. <laughs> And then we went to the skyline, and we had some of that wonderful, wonderful stuff you have here. <laughs> and I've been gassy as hell ever since. <laughs> and, um, and then we went to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, I, I heard um, a, a wonderful talk and what I needed. Um, to give me one more thing that might save my life in my recovery. And that's what I, what, what I do in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't want to miss anything. Because if I do, if I walk out of a meeting, if, if I'm not there early and hang around late, I, uh, my sponsor always said you might miss the one thing that's going to save your life. You might miss hearing it. And that's important. I got it to get something out of the way. I want to thank the speakers too. It's uh, they've been wonderful, just wonderful, and and just seeing old friends. And and you know, and if you're new and you're sitting in this room, like you little guys that have just a, you know, a, a few few weeks, few days, you're gonna think, oh God. Um, but this is the truth. You continue to stay in Alcoholics Anonymous. Nobody ever told me to keep coming back. I don't think you wanted to give me the edge. But you said if you stay in Alcoholics Anonymous, wonderful things will happen. 
besides getting better. I have friends sitting in this room that I haven't seen for a few years. Liz is one of them, and uh, Mary drove all the way up from from, uh, Dayton. Or do you drive down from Dayton? I don't know. (laughs) Around from Dayton. She came from Dayton. And it, it, it's things like this, and I, I see people in this room that I haven't seen for maybe 10 years. And, and the thing about it is that there, there's something about meeting in rooms like this that you can pick up a conversation right where you left off. And it's amazing to me. It, it's an absolute blessing, just a blessing. I also have to tell you that I have a sobriety date because my sponsor said if you don't tell your sobriety date, it means you don't have one. And my sobriety date is by the grace of God. And and rooms like this, and in my home group, which is the best home group in the world, and my sponsor, and, uh, you know, 12-step blah, blah, I, I have... <laughs> I have not found it necessary to pick up a drink or take anything else that's going to make me weirder than I already am since March the 5th of 1972. And... <laughs> ah, you buy a tape, all you can hear is Liz on it. You can't even hear the message. It's... Uh... <laughs> have a home group, the best home group in the world. And if you don't think your home group is the best in the world, don't come to mine and screw it up. <laughs> it's, um, it's Golden Link, and we meet on Sunday mornings at 11 o'clock, and I'm always there. I am always there unless I'm out of town, because it's my responsibility to be there. Because when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was told that when you say you're going to be someplace, you better be there. You better be there. You better participate in what's going around beyond, around you because that's the responsibility of, of being sober. One of them is to be where you say you're going to be and do what you say you're going to do. And, and I also have <clears throat> a sponsor. <laughs> and I really never knew that um, I had homicidal tendencies <laughs> until I met up with my sponsor. And then... That is a defect of character that I want to hang on to. (laughs) I love Evelyn. I love Evelyn. Uh, I have to call Evelyn at least four times a week. And if I don't, the phone will ultimately ring. And if she leaves a message on the machine, it goes just like this. Hello, this is God calling. (laughs) And hangs up. And I know it's Evelyn. It's, um, ah. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I've had a love affair going with Alcoholics Anonymous since I first walked through the door. Not a love affair going with everybody in AA. But love affair, and, and I really do love the people in, in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and that was talked about today. And, and I, because you have given me so much. You really have. I don't know what I would do without you today. And very briefly, you know, my sobriety was really brought home to me two weeks ago in San Diego when I was sitting at a submarine base, submarine naval base, and I was sitting on a white chair, 
and there were mount there's a mountain in the background and, and the sea is out here. And and I turned around and stood up as my oldest grandchild that's twenty one years old walked down the aisle. And I thought to myself, way down deep in my soul, that I saw that child born when she was ten minutes old, and now I am standing here watching her come down the aisle. Beautiful, beautiful girl. And that child has never seen her grandmother drunk. And that's what sobriety is all about. She has never seen the crummy attitudes. She has never seen the this, this stuff that went on. And that to me is, is what it's all about. What it's all about. Life on life's terms. And, and, you know, when I, I came to you to stop drinking, that's why. Yeah, now, I don't know if I reached my, you know, there were a lot of talk about bottoms this weekend. And I remember coming home and talking to my husband, telling my husband about, you know, we were talking about bottoms. And he called up my sponsor and he said, what goes on in Alcoholics Anonymous? She's coming home and telling me you're talking about bottoms. <laughs> Those bottoms, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> my my sponsor said, you know, just she believes the bottom. She believes it's bottom when you're sitting in a room all alone. And the walls are lined with all the different kinds of alcohol that you can imagine. And all the different kinds of the other little doo-doo things that people use today that you can imagine. And, and you're so thirsty and so needy and everything else. And you walk over and you take down a bottle and you unscrew it. And there's nothing in it. And she said, that's the end of the line. I, I don't know about I I believe I reached my total surrender. And... Um, you know, I, I, I wanted to stop drinking because it, it, things, it, my life was, was becoming a darn mess. And, and I had that moment of clarity, which I'll get to in a minute. And, um, I, you know, I, didn't, I knew nothing about what my sponsor told me and my home group told me, that this is a journey. This is a journey. This is a trudge. And then I thought you said you sludged along the road to happiness. <laughs> It took a while. And um, my sponsor said to me, think of it this way. It's like being on a choo-choo train. And you look out the window, and as you go by, and you see beautiful mountains, you know, out the window, and, and fields waving around with, with flowers, and, and it's, it's gorgeous out there. And then all of a sudden you come to another area, and it's burnout. And it's it's desolate, and everything on it is it, it's just is dead. There's no life there at all, and it gives you a funny feeling way down deep in the pit of your stomach. But she said, if you stay on the train and on the road to recovery, is what it is. Sooner or later, you're going to look out the window, and you're going to see the beautiful fields of flowers and the mountains and the sunsets again. And she said, that's what this is all about. This is life on life's terms. We teach you, if you stay in Alcoholics Anonymous, how to face reality and not have to run anymore. And Clancy, 
calls this a disease of the perception of reality. And I could see this because I saw what I wanted to see until I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. And when things got tough and when things were hurting, you taught me because I stayed in the rooms and I did the things that I was asked to do. You taught me to stay here and not to run away anymore. And, and it's been, some of it's been real tough. But it's nothing to me today is worth the price of a drink. Nothing. And, and I said to my sponsor, I cannot wait until I get there. And she said, where's there? And I said, at the end of the sludge or the, the trudge or, or, the, or the end of the journey, you know, when I know everything. I know everything there is to know about the 12 steps. I know all of that. And she looked at me and she said, it's never going to be. You're never going to get there. I said, I'm going to get there someday with them. And she said, who's them and where's there? You're never going to get there. And I said, when I die, I'll know it all. And she said, I'm going to tell you something about the day you die. She said, the day you die, you're going to the big meeting in the sky. And when you walk through the gates, you're going in as a new person and you've got to start all over again. <laughs> So, says to tell a little bit about what it was like and, in a general way and what happened and what it's like. What it's like today, I uh, was a little girl, loved running in the sunshine, chasing fireflies, and having tea with my, ra my little raggedy underneath a cherry tree and uh, just enjoyed life. Loved it. Lived to make, you know, those those snowman angels in the snow. And I loved to to try to figure out who was on what clouds. And I liked to have fun. I liked to squoosh dandelions on the end of my nose and, and um, go boo at the lady next door that had the worst breath I've ever smelled in my life. And she'd get all and run in the house and slam the door. And I thought it was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Um, and, and I just loved it. <laughs> and, and I loved the people that were around me. I, I just loved life. And then I went to school. <laughs> now, I don't know if it's school or what it was, but something happened. I went to school and kids laughed. Well, I sounded funny. I mean, I sound funny tonight. I got a throat thing, virus. So... <laughs> If I don't stop before it does, then too bad. But anyway, then go buy another tape from Beth. And <laughs> finish it up. But it, it, I talked funny because um, my first father was murdered at the age of 24 in a speakeasy in Chicago. And for those of you who are real, really young, um, speakeasy is like a bar. And he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And... and uh, some of the family told me as, as I got older that he was a full-blown alcoholic at the age of 24. And um, he got murdered. And so my mother and I moved in with my Scottish grandfather. My mother and, and my grandpa and my grandma had come over from Aberdeen, Scotland. And uh, so everybody, everybody talked in that brogue. My grandpa at this time was a widower. 
And, and everybody talked in the sky, and that's all I heard. So I went, I went to school, I rolled my R's, and I did all that stuff. And, and kids laughed because they couldn't understand me. Ended up, my mother took me for nine and a half years addiction lessons. So the kids wouldn't laugh anymore. But I felt different. Different. Like I didn't belong. Like I was left out. And uh, I, I, I build a wall. I build a wall. I wasn't going to let you in. I build a wall, and as I jollied on in my life, I wore a mask, a phenomenal mask. You wouldn't have known how I felt because I wasn't going to share anything with anybody. And I caught one heck of an attitude. And when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous and, and started to get a little sanity in here, I copped an attitude. And then, you know, you hear it. Attitude is gratitude. And if you're, you know, all that stuff. And, and then, you know, I was asked, how grateful are you? You know, can the attitude. And, and one thing I learned when I was a new person, you don't need to wear a mask anymore in these rooms. You can take the mask off that we've worn for years and years and years, and you can learn who you are and where you're going. And, and when I say I'm an alcoholic and my name is Beth Gordon, I know who I am. I'm an alcoholic, and I know where I'm going. I'm trudging the road to happy destiny with you. And it's just that simple. Just that simple. But then I closed down. It, I just felt like I was outside looking in some dumb window. And, and I remained that way with an attitude throughout my schooling. But you still wouldn't have known it. Because I could be anything you wanted me to be, and I could do anything you wanted me to do. And, and then Prince Charming came along in this 1955 Ford. He was a little over six feet tall and he was very blonde and he had blue eyes and he had shoulders like the Rocky Mountains and I hopped in that car and we drove off into the sunset and I thought now everything's going to be okay I'm going to get what I want <laughs> quick marital course marriage is more giving than anything else, and I wasn't ready for it. I couldn't, I couldn't survive in a relationship. I didn't know what it was all about. And it isn't that nobody loved me when I was growing up. Yeah, they did. I had a bunch of aunts and uncles that I thought, that thought I was the greatest thing in the world. My mama did the best for me that she could do, and so did my grandpa. But the whole bunch of relatives used to come over to the house. And you know how it is. Oh, little girl, how are you? My, how you've grown and all that stuff. And, and, then, and it was wonderful. They'd bring little presents and stuff. And then they'd take out bottles. And they'd sit them on the counter. And they'd have little glasses. And they'd put ice in it. And they'd fill it up. And then they'd drink it. And then everybody else, everybody used terrible language, got mad at everybody, and they all slammed out, and we never ate. And I swore <laughs> that I was not going to starve to death, and therefore I wasn't going to use any of that stuff in a bottle. I promised myself. Yes, my mother was an alcoholic. My mother did remarry when I was nine years old to probably one of the finest men I have ever known in my life. I never thought of him as anything else but my father. And he was a, a, just a ton of love and a ton of support. And, and I was able to 
sit down and tell my mama that I loved her before she died because the program of Alcoholics Anonymous teaches us about forgiveness. And it, it was just such a relief because mama did a lot for me. As I said, the best that she could do. So anyway, Prince Charming and I went hobbling along and, and we set up housekeeping and uh, I didn't like being married because <laughs> I wasn't getting what I wanted, when I wanted it, and how I wanted it. And, and I let him know it. And when my first daughter, Annie, was born in 1956, I didn't like being a mother at all, at all, because you have to be responsible. And I didn't want to be responsible. I thought the world owed me a living. Today, I figure I owe the world a living. You know, but then I thought, oh, boy, you owe me a living. So we were at a party. And uh, somebody said to me, you know, I, I don't understand you. Said you're like a rubber band just pulled taut. You're like an accident waiting to happen. You're tensed up all the time. You never smile. I never smiled until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. My sponsor said, well, you're running around to all these meetings. Why don't you smile and give your face something to do so it doesn't feel left out? <laughs> I've been smiling ever since. <laughs> I forgot the promise I made myself, and my arm shot out from my shoulder, and I picked up that Manhattan on the rocks with a bunch of garbage in it, and I drank it just like this. And, and you heard this afternoon, if you were in here, exactly, boy, could I identify with that, exactly, pardon me, <laughs> maybe I'll be through sooner than I should, <laughs> exactly how I felt, it, it was horrible tasting, and, and it felt like you were sucking on a lemon around here, and then it hit. And just like everybody else, that warm feeling, that wonderful feeling. I came in from out there for the first time in my life, and I could talk, and I could make sense. And when I went to the bathroom and washed my hands and looked into the mirror and saw Elizabeth Taylor looking back at me, <laughs> I knew I had it made. And from that time on, I drank, I got drunk, and I got into a whole bunch of trouble. My alcoholism was like kicking a snowball off the top of Mount Everest. And, and as it cascaded down the side of the mountain, it got bigger and bigger until it smashed at the bottom. And the horror was it took everything in its path with it. Everything in its path. Oh, it didn't start out that way right away. I didn't get into a lot of trouble right away. I was sneaky about it. You know how we are? We forge checks so that we can keep up with our, our little booze job. And, and, when, and back then, you know, well, you, had to, you had to write your name down when you went into to liquor places. We had them. We had state liquor stores. And you had to go in and pick out your booze, and, and then you, you had to make out a, uh, a slip. And, and I thought maybe I better stop that because the FBI was probably looking for me. <laughs> You know, the paranoia that comes with this disease. So I discovered wine. God, it was like rocket juice. It got me where I wanted to go. I loved it. 
I loved it. Italian Swiss colony, Thunderbird, <laughs> Muscatel. The guy on the next street made Mad Dog, and boy, did I love that. It had crunchy junk in the bottom of it. <laughs> And I thought I was getting my nutrition. <laughs> and I loved it. It came in the large economy size. It came in quarts. It came in pints. You could shove down your front when you went in the house so you didn't make a lump. And I, uh, you know, then came the dilemma. I started to hide it because I didn't want anybody to know how much I was drinking. So I got, you know, and, and I had a problem. And I don't know if you had the same problem. I never could read what I wrote, but I'd write down where it was. And then I'd make maps, and I never could read what my map said. So I figured, my good alcoholic thinking, I figured since we lived in a White House, two-story clone, lived in a White House, if I painted a fifth of wine white, I could hang it out the second story window on a white rope, and nobody would see it. I went outside and looked. I couldn't see it. It blended in beautifully with the house. And then when the great thirst came over me, all I had to do was to pull it up and let it back down. And that worked for a while until he saw it. And he called me down, Elizabeth. And when I heard that name, Elizabeth, I knew I was in deep doo-doo. So I went downstairs. I said, well, yeah. And he said to me, what are you doing? What is that? And I said, I don't see anything. <laughs> so he said, you stay right there. I'm going to get Marty. Marty was his best friend. Marty lived down the street. So he said, don't you move. I won't. So he went around and to go down the street to get Marty, and boy, I shot up those stairs, and I pulled that thing up and shoved it under the bed and ran back downstairs, and I wasn't even breathing hard. And Marty came, and he said to Marty, I think she's going insane. She really has a problem. Marty, look what she's doing. And Marty looked up there, and he looked at Bruce. He said, Bruce, I think you need some psychiatric help. There really isn't anything there. You're paranoid. So I had to quit doing that, and then I discovered the douchebag. <laughs> Are you gentlemen all right with this? Up here? If you don't know what one is, ask your grandmother. I'd pour the wine in the thing and put foil over the top because nobody looks in one. I'd hang it up in the bathroom. And then when the horrible thirst came over me, I'd just go in the bathroom and shut the door and take the hose and then click it. And it. Trouble with step two. <laughs> and then when that didn't work anymore, we went to the Anima bottle. Same deal. Anyway, you know how dumb we get. And then I, um, I had a pawnbroker in Cleveland, and, and and all those things were going on, and 
and uh, he caught on, and uh, he told me five years after I picked up my first drink that said, you're an alcoholic. Better go to Alcoholics Anonymous or I'm going to cut off your allowance. Well, he'd already taken me off the checking account and the savings account. You know, I, I just love it. People, people come into the program. I, I remember I whined when I first got sober. I even can't write a check. I can't write a... <laughs> I was told, you have to earn the right. You have to earn the right. And my sponsor said, quit whining. And she made me go to the library and take out Winnie the Pooh, first edition, and read and read about Eeyore's birthday. And then I had to write a two-page thing on how I identified with Eeyore. You better believe everybody I sponsor, when they whine, they go to the library and they get Winnie the Pooh and they write a two-page Uzi and how they identify with Eeyore. So it, it was a cutting off the allowance, and I, and I knew that uh, I, I, there was no way I could get my hands on anything. So I went around Alcoholics Anonymous for the first of three times, and if you're new, for God's sake, listen. I walked into these meetings, and I wasn't honest with you. Oh, I heard your messages from up here. I heard about your jails and your divorces and your financial problems and all that stuff. But see, that hadn't happened to me yet. And I think yet is one of the most important words in this fellowship. Because I'll clue you. If you go out and do what you did, you're going to get what you got in spades. I have never known anybody to go back into the playground of alcohol and make it out alive. And it's, it's someplace I don't want to be. And I wasn't willing to do anything you asked me to do. And two years later, the social service workers were on my case. By this time, my children are going to school not dressed properly. Um, my, a teacher overheard my oldest daughter say to the other children in my family, if you're sick, stay in school, don't go home. My kids were... Nobody could ask them anything because the kids in my family said nothing because they were, they were terrorized. And they knew what would happen to them if they opened their mouths. Their father was a sales engineer. Bruce traveled. And he traveled most of the state of Ohio. And, and he was doing his responsibility as a husband and a father, and he was bringing in the money. And, and he, he told me when I got sober about the worry and the fear Alcohol gives, alcoholism gives fear in a family. Our family lived in fear for years and years and years. My kids said, fear, Mom, if you'd be alive when we got home. Fear that you'd show up at school drunk, which I did a couple of times. The selfishness, self-centeredness of the disease of alcoholism came in right away into my life. But I didn't want to lose my kids. Ever since I was that little girl running in the sunshine and chasing butterflies, I'd always wanted to be a good wife and a good mother. And it wasn't happening. It was just kind of evaporating. 
in front of my eyes. So I went back around, Alcoholics Anonymous, and I played the same game. I went to one meeting a week. Now I got figuring it out. I'm 70 years old. I wonder if I had gone to school once a week since kindergarten, what grade I'd be in today. <laughs> Third, maybe. And see, I don't want to take the chance anymore. I can't tell you what you need. I know what I need. And today, I still go to a minimum of four meetings a week. I need that to make the committee shut up. Somebody else just has one person in here. That's great. I got a whole bunch of them. And, and you know, they'll say, why don't you stay home and watch The Survivor on TV? <laughs> I don't want to watch a survivor. I've got a room full of survivors. I don't need to stay home and watch it. Why don't you take? Oh, you're such an old person. And, and I just, you know, I, I tell it to shut up. I don't want to hear it. And the one way I can make it shut up is to pick up the phone and call that darn Evelyn. And she's louder than they are. My home group is louder than they are. People in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous are louder than they are. And anyway, I'm a creature of habit. If I stay home once, it's easy to stay home twice. And it's sure more easy to stay home three and four times like eating M&M's. <laughs> it's the first one, you know. So anyway, I uh, fiddle food around with it, and, and four years later I was in a, a terrible, terrible trouble. I was on my ninth DUI, and I was arrested for assault and battery. And... Um, well, the Summit County Sheriff had picked me up, you know, because the, the yellow line had hopped up on the wrong side of the street, which it usually did. And I ended up in the South Berm, and he came to the, to the rescue job. He said, I'll take you home. You know, first he said, have you been drinking? I mean, how dumb can you get? And, you know, I mean, I had a fifth and a quart and a half a gallon in the car. Quart was gone. And, and I don't think I exactly smelled like some gorgeous breath thing. And you, when you roll down the window, you know, they get it in spades. Have you been drinking? Well, come, I'll take you home. Now, I thought, what will the neighbors think? My God. Well, the neighbors probably would have been going like this. So he kept insisting, and I got mad at him and hit him over the head with my wine bottle. <laughs> And he got 24 stitches, and I got my picture taken with some numbers under my <laughs> The family portrait. <laughs> so I went back around A, and I played the same game. And I'll tell you, the rest of the time was absolute hell. That descent into that horrible pit where there are no feelings. There's nothing. There's no time. There's no day. There's no, there's no anything. And, and your world revolves, my world revolved around drinking. I didn't even care anymore. I think that's one of the worst things that can happen to you. You just don't care. You just don't care. I was oblivious to everything. I, I was told by two neighbors when they came to pick up a terrible, disastrous mess on, on Christmas Day. Uh, of 1971 to crawl in a hole and die like the animal I had become. 
and to let other people around me live. And the only way I handled that was to get drunk. On March the 4th of 1972, sitting at the kitchen table in that bathrobe. Um, I don't know if you had one of those bathrobes. I had a, it was blue. And I did everything in it. You know, I went in it, I threw up in it, I hiked it up, and I get in the car and I go over to over town and I get my booze in it and I go home in it. You know, three years sober, my sponsor said to me, you know, I'm done with you hanging on to some of the wreckage of your past. We're going to burn the damn thing. And we did. Out in the backyard, and the garbage can made terrible smoke smell. Oh, cute. But anyway, I was sitting there. I finished everything there was to, to drink in the house, and it was the first time that... Uh, I didn't have that horrible feeling in the in the pit of my stomach that that uh, I was out of anything. I mean, I it was the first time I didn't go after rubbing alcohol or or cologne or I had wonderful breath when I was drinking. Just don't come around me if you have on Chanel number five. <laughs> um, did the trick. Uh, it was the first time. I, I just sat there. And I watched my family go to church. Nobody said goodbye. Nobody talked to me for a long time. It, it is the loneliest sickness there is. This thing called alcoholism. I lived in a house with four children and a husband. And the last, the last year and a half of my drinking, nobody talked to me. They'd go on vacations, and a couple of times I, I, I wanted to go with them. But between the time my husband would take the dog over to the vet about two miles away and get home, I was already drunk. And he threw my suitcases out in the lawn, and he said, Stay home with your friend. And they left me. And um, so nobody talked. Nobody wanted to get hurt anymore. And, and so, and on those faces... I saw all the pain and suffering and misery and guilt and shame and horror of the disease of alcoholism. I listened to these Al-Anon speakers, and I don't know how, Sam Hill, you did it. Because in our family, if the shoe had been on the other foot, I would have kicked him out. He... Um, I found out uh, when I was sober uh, five years, and I was up in the attic looking for some things, some, some papers of ours, and I came across a uh, document to Lima State Hospital. And uh, it was all filled out. The only thing that was left was he hadn't signed it. And I found out um, from Bruce that day when I asked him about it, took the paper down, he said that... Uh, he was getting ready to sign it, and there was a knock on the back door. It was Jerry Jackson, an old-timer that had never given up hope on the family that I had met when I was screwing around Alcoholics Anonymous. And Jerry asked him to wait just to give it four more months. And, and that was January of 1972, and I, I came to you on March, in March of 19. 
72, two months later. Uh, he said he was at the end of his rope. He didn't know what to do. He thought I was insane. And once you get in line, you don't get out. It's, um, I realized that everything I saw in my children and, and in my husband was because I'm an alcoholic and I wanted to live. I wanted help. I believe today that that little part of me that was not chewed alive by alcohol that I call my soul opened up and God zoomed in with a gift of sobriety. And, and I, my God, I, I took that gift. Now, I don't think that'll ever happen again. And maybe that's why today that I'm doing the same things that I did, you know, when I first got sober. Maybe this is why that, that I, I continue to go to the meetings I go to, that the activity in Alcoholics Anonymous keeps up, because I do not believe I will ever receive the gift of sobriety again, and I don't want to take the chance. I, it's, I picked up the phone, and I called my Aunt Jean in Chicago, who at that time had nine years of uninterrupted sobriety in Alcoholics Anonymous, and Jean taught me one of the biggest lessons I've ever known, ever known. Because when my Aunt Jean had 20 years of uninterrupted sobriety, she stopped going to meetings. She didn't need them anymore. She knew it. And six months later, she picked up her first drink, and three months after that, she died of internal hemorrhaging. You don't screw with this thing. And, and thank God she was alive to, to help me. She asked me the name of that old-timer, Jerry Jackson, who had never given up hope on me. And, and, and you know, he had come over. I, when I had met Jerry... He had come over to, and, and he, he literally glued my family together. He glued them together the way the traditions glue us together. And he gave them hope that maybe someday things would be okay, be better. And to, you know, and, and it, that same kind, I saw that same kind of hope when I cleaned my house for the first time in, in sobriety. And I, I think I was sober about 10 months. And I knocked a cobweb, a spider web, out of the, out of a corner, and you know, and down came the spider, whoop, on this invisible something, and was swaying back and forth. I put my mop out. I was going to kill that sucker. I can't stand him, but I didn't. I, I watched him. Yeah, I didn't stand there like an idiot and watch him. I mean, I'd, every time I go through the dining room, I watch him, and he put one fuzzy foot over the other with all that determination and hope. And he climbed this invisible something, and he rebuilt what had been destroyed, his home. And it was the most beautiful spider web I've ever seen in my life. When the sunlight came through the window, it, it absolutely glowed. And, and I don't ever want to forget that. I learned a lot from pictures and, and you people painting pictures for me when I first got sober that I don't want to forget. And, it, you know, that, that hope we give to each other. When we, when we take a hand, you know, especially to the newcomer, when, when we recognize the newcomer, and they, I remember when I walked through the doors of an AA meeting and somebody took my cold hand in their warm one. 
And did you ever look into a newcomer's eyes when you take their hand and you say, welcome? You know, you don't ask them about the trouble they were in. You, you don't get after them how they look. It's just welcome. And you give them that same kind of hope. Same, and we give each other that hope all the time with a phone call or, or, or having coffee with each other. It, it just works. I don't know why. I have no idea. You know? And, and, and Jerry said to me, Beth, that isn't going to be easy. Because nothing in life that's worthwhile is easy. But if you'll take our hands and you'll come with us and trudge the happy road of destiny, or sludge it, I thought he said, you know, things will get better. And today I know what better is. Better is the fact I can look at my myself in the eyes in a mirror and tell myself, mm -hmm, have a nice day. I didn't look into my own eyes until I'd been sober almost three and a half years. I looked at my hair when I combed it. I looked at all, you know, and it, it, was, it was truly a, a God's gift. I can stand myself today, and I better because everywhere I go, there I am. You go to the bathroom, you're already sitting on the thing. You go to bed, you're already in it. I mean, and, and so, you know, and, and I, oh, Lord, I love to take inventories. <laughs> but you know what my darn sponsor told me? The world is a looking glass, and what you see in it is a reflection of yourself. <laughs> And that didn't help, because if I take your inventory, by God, i got to look in here. And it's coming from here. It always is. It always is. It isn't out there. It's right here. And that's what that serenity prayer says. Grant me the, this serenity to accept the things I cannot change. You guys out there, the courage to change what I can. And by God, it's right here. This attitude and everything else. And the wisdom to know the difference. And sometimes I get into a lot of trouble. <laughs> because I'm not perfect. And that's why I stay in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> and then they came. The kamikazes, the sponsors. You guys today ought to feel lucky. You can pick your own. Back then we took what we got and by God there was no return. <laughs> They came in the house. They tell you everything you never want to hear. And all they were telling you was their experience, strength, and hope. You know, and then they tell you how sick you are. But they don't tell you out loud. They get in the corner and whisper. Because being good alcoholics, all we can hear of somebody is when they whisper. Did you ever try that? To somebody you're sponsoring? You'll talk to them in a tone like this. And and start to whisper with somebody else. The ears perk up. You know, and they, they told me I was sick. I belonged in train. The only thing, Rosary Hall had uh, shut down for women because they were opening their three women's detox beds to five, and they were painting the walls pink and hanging up polka dotty curtains. And uh, St. Thomas Hospital had a four-and-a-half-week waiting list on it for their three detox women's beds, and that was it. And so my sponsors decided that nobody had ever died on them, and by God, nobody was going to start. 
So he went to two and three AA meetings a day, seven days a week for the first year. I was sober. Once I called my sponsor and told her I was too tired to go. <laughs> Death isn't that quiet. <laughs> and then she sucked in air. And when Evelyn sucks in air, you hang on to anything that doesn't move up, will you? Or you go zoop right through the phone. And that voice on the other side, that's the most selfish thing I ever heard. If you think you're tired, what do you think we are? We'll be there in 10 minutes. 10 minutes later, I'm standing out there all excited. I'm going to another meeting of alcoholics. I have 12-step calls. Love them. I'm glad they're coming back in truth. They are up by, i got to tell you about the first 12-step call that I ever went on or I won't get out of Cincinnati alive. The phone rings. I just, we just, I just got home from meeting. Phone ring. It's her. The hand is out. I said, the hand is doing what? <laughs> the hand is out. Be ready. I'm coming over. So she came, I got in the car, and she's explaining about the hand being out, and I was responsible, and, and so we chugging along to this, we pull in the driveway, we get out of the car, we go to the door, we knock. Nobody answers. I start back to the car. She said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to the car. Nobody, nobody is home. She said, wait a minute. There's a window open on the second floor. You go, you go in the garage and see if there's an extension ladder. I said, that's breaking and entering. She said, no, it isn't. She called us. We didn't call her. And then the hand, I thought I could. So we put it up. And she said, you are going up. And gave me the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I said, I am afraid of heights. And then she said, faith and fear do not dwell in the same house. And when the hand got, I'd gone to any lengths to get rid of that thing. So I started, and she's kind of shakes. So, and I'm going up the ladder, and I whoop with a window, and as I went through, I caught my foot on the windowsill and fell flat down dead on the poor, suffering alcoholic <laughs> who's lying spread-eagled on the floor, hanging on to her vodka bottle. I didn't know what to say. I'd never been on this far from her nose. I, so I looked at her, and I said, did you call alcoholic? <laughs> She stayed sober for 15 years until she died, and Ruthie said she did it out of fright. <laughs> anyway, we started to go to meetings. And it's in these rooms that I am learning. Learning how to stay sober. With handshakes and hugs. With uh, you telling me. Things like that were, were very, real important to me because it, it, this was so screwed up I couldn't get a lot in there. You're telling me that if I go sit on a railroad track and wait long enough, train will come along 
and he'll hit me and I'll go squoosh like a bloody heap and I won't with the engine and I'm not even going to care what the coal car does. You know, so that's the way you explain to me it's a first drink that's going to knock me flat. And I've never forgotten that. Every time I hear woo-woo-woo from a train, I think of that. You know? Because it was easy for me to understand. You told me that I could never be a social drinker again. I never was one. <laughs> but then you say, you you don't. You are the closest I ever came. Somebody said, I think I'll have another drink. And I said, so shall I. <laughs> we got on with it. And glad to see you're awake. And... Uh, <laughs> Then they told me about that I was like a cucumber growing in the garden and that you picked me and you put me in a big barrel of guck and you slammed the lid down. And how long was I in there? Days, months, weeks, years. But when you took the lid off and you reached in there to grab me out, I was no longer a cucumber. I had turned into a pickle. And there was no way that a pickle can become a cucumber again. Now go buy yourself a jar of pickles. I was told to keep it on the second shelf in your refrigerator so when you open the door you'll take a look at it and you'll remember that. And I did it. And I still have the jar of pickles on the second shelf in my refrigerator, not the same jar. <laughs> and today, you know what I do? I, if I open it, I look at it and say, what step are you guys on today? You know? <laughs> If it works, why not? You know, why fix it? And you told me about uh, action, that you don't hang around the outside. You told me when I walk into a room, in a meeting room, I shake hands with people, whether I want to or not, because it's all part of it. And there might be a new person sitting there who is scared to death to shake a hand in the first place. And if you shake everybody's hand and say hi, then, then, you know, I look right into their eyes. Not only does it, it helps both ways. And that's the glory of this thing called Alcoholics Anonymous. It's a two-way street. And, and I learned to do that. And, and you talked to me about kitchen duty. And I, my sponsor signed me up for, for kitchen duty. And, and you told me to keep busy, and that's what you do, to keep in the center of it. That there is kitchen duty, that there's door greeters. And that there's, you know, there, there's getting there early to help set up. And there's hanging around late to help put down. And, and that, you know, it, it's like, it, because I was told this. It's like ducks swimming in a pond. Did you ever see ducks swimming in a pond? There's not a ripple in the water. Did you ever look underneath the water? Their legs are going around like this. If those legs stop, those ducks are going to drown. And that's exactly what will happen to us in Alcoholics Anonymous if we aren't active. Once we stop with the action, we're going to drown and die. And, and I, you just laid it out so well to me. And, and you suggested I read, and no, actually nobody ever suggested anything to me. You talked to me like a bunch of cops. Get in, get out, stand up, sit down, read this, read that. And, and I just thought it was how it was. And, and she told me to, you know, the suggestion. My sponsor cleared that up because once I said to her, you know, it says suggested. 
And she said, yeah, it's like kicking you out of an airplane. And before you go, yoo-hoo, I suggest you open your chute. She said, you're better off if I say open the darn thing or you're going to go squishy on the ground. <laughs> Told me to read uh, two pages a day out loud in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous to get it in here and down into here. And I still read two pages a day out loud in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous to keep it here to here. And I don't know how many big books. I think I'm on about my 18th one because I underline and I write in the margins. And it's the most magic book I've ever read. It changes. I, I can, you know, I can open that book to any page and I get an answer. It's a wonderful book, and my sponsor helped me go through it. It, it. It's just, it's the greatest love story I have ever read in my life. It's a love story between people like us and a God who reached out and said, Come on, kids, you've had enough. And how we live is in there. I love step groups. Go to a step group, go to a big book group. I meet with my sponsor. I continually go through those steps. Because she said, you know, you're never through. That's what you told me in the beginning. And I love it that there's 12 months in a year. January is a real good time to really concentrate on step one. February on step two. March on step three. And so far, yes, we work them all the time. But it's real helpful. I've never be done with those steps. Never. I'm always learning something new. And it's our way of life. It, it's, you know, to, I can, and today, I, I have to do one, two, and three if something's really bothering me. Because my sponsor said, you're obviously powerless over it, screwing up your life, or it wouldn't bother you. So, so she takes me through the whole thing. God, those are wonderful things, those steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I built my sobriety. You told me to build my sobriety on the four absolutes. We do this up there. Honesty and selfishness, love and purity. And, and they said to me, you know, it's not that you're going to be absolute anything, but there's four questions that come out of those absolutes that are real important to remember before you open the hole in your face. It's what you are about to do and say right or wrong. It's what you are about to do and say ugly or beautiful. It's what you are about to do and say true or false. And most important of all, how will it affect the other guy? We're human. We have feelings. We're terribly sensitive. And, and we are. We are. And I could cut somebody down like a saw. And this is why I have to continually stay in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and grow and change. Because you told me that's what it was all about. You also told me to read my 24-hour book four times a day out loud to get it in here and down into here. And I still do that today. That thought for the day is very, very important to me. And I came to believe in you. You didn't lie to me. Nobody ever did. You were where you said you would be when you were going to be there. You listened to me. And, and what I have learned since I've started to sponsor people is all you need to do really is listen. I'm no great guru. 
I don't have all the answers, but if somebody calls me and I just listen while they talk, it's surprising what happens on the other end. Oh, oh, I see. Well, thank you very much. (laughs) You just know everything. And I haven't said a word except hello and goodbye, and I love you. And and it's, it's wonderful, that ability to talk that ability to get things out. And then my sponsor said to me, okay, at night, you take off your bedroom slippers and you get down on your knees and you shove your slippers under your bed and you say thanks. And I said, who and for what? And she said, you'll find out who you're talking to. Don't push the river. It runs by itself. Easy does it. Boom. All those things. And then in the morning... When you, you know, when you wake up and you lie there and you listen to the beginning of the new day. I thought you were nuts. You're blooming where you're planted. You're taking time to smell flowers. And now you're telling me to listen to the sounds of the beginning of the new day. I thought you were nuts. Horticulturist, botanist or something. She said, you ever try it? I said, no. She said, try it. You might like it. And I did it because I was willing to do anything. And I heard rain for the first time. And I heard wind blow. And I heard deer calling. And I heard, I heard the coyote in the valley. And, and, and it, I heard the way the ice crinkles on trees. And, and I, you know, I, I still listen. Oh, God, you hear the creaks and the groans in your own home. You hear the breathing of the people you live with life. And I still do it today. Because I figure if I listen long enough, I might hear the sun come up. Try it. You might like it. The only thing I would say to you is that if you live by yourself and you hear somebody breathing, you better dial 911. <laughs> And then you said, get down on your knees and grovel around for your bedroom slippers. And while you're down there, remind yourself you're an alcoholic and the problem is you. And ask to make lemonade out of the lemons of life that are bounced your way today and get on and get out with this thing called life. And I did it because I wanted to be sober more than I wanted to be drunk and I found out who I was talking to. And I call him God. And he's the best friend that I have ever had in my life. He's always there. He never moved. Ha, I did. He didn't. He didn't. He, he'd never come down and take me out for a McDonald's. I keep waiting. <laughs> and he never does. But, but he's, it's that feeling of him always being there. I've never seen him make junky stuff. I mean, my God, look around this room. And, and I, I never said, why me? It's a real dingbat thing for me to say. I mean, why not me? Obviously, if I'm not given any more than in a 24-hour period, then I can handle with his grace and, and you, your support, and the 12 steps of alcoholics and none. I mean, why ask? Why me? Why not me? I don't want your problems. You sure as heck don't want mine. And I came to believe in a God of my understanding. And I believed in the gift that he had given to me. And thank God I did. 
because I had to write that fourth step for the first time. And I, I had to sit down there and write it with a, with, with a paper. And I, um, my sponsor said, you got to let go. After when we sit down and do this, you got to let go. I didn't know how to let go and let God. I heard you say, let go, let God, let go, let God, let go, let God. Oh, my God. How? <laughs> how? And so my sponsor said, anybody ever fix anything for you? And I said, yes, my grandfather. And she said, give me an instance. And I remember having tea with my raggedy underneath a cherry tree and having a good time. And the dog came and grabbed the raggedy, and he tore off her arms, and he, and he made a hole in her stomach, and he tore out a button eye, and she was a mess. And I picked it all up, and I went, and I crawled up on my grandfather's lap. And I said to him, Grandpa, can you fix this? And I will never forget those blue eyes and the way those arms felt around me. And that Scottish brogue when he looked at me and he said, Bethy, I cannot fix it until you let go. And I released it to him. No questions asked. No instructions given. I just believed that blind faith of a child. And that's how I have to remember to let go of things even today. And thank God I did. Because otherwise, if I hadn't learned how to let go, I I would have been dead. I am responsible for the death of two of my children when I was drinking. I had a little girl that was a year and a half old. And uh, Kimberly had red hair and she loved to run in a little year and a half she got measles, and when he got measles back there, he had to be real careful of your children and watch them because there weren't any shots. And I was in the kitchen drinking in the morning, and Annie came out, and she said, Mama, Kimmy's the color of the sky. Annie was three and a half at the time. She said, Kimmy's the color of the sky. And I told Anne to go away. I was busy. And she came back in a minute. And she said, Mama, Kimmy's on the floor. And I told, I hit her. And I said, stay out of my life, I'm busy. And a three-and-a-half-year-old child in bare feet in her pajamas walked out in the snow into the neighbors next door and pounded on the door and got help for her sister. The neurosurgeons at Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital said Kimberly had four very violent convulsions. And... Um, lost a lot of oxygen in her brain, and she retrogressed back mentally to a three-week-old baby, and she remained that way until she died when she was nine. We had to put her in a private home. My husband said, my wife cannot take care of her. She's nothing but a drunk. And he went down, and he saw Kimberly twice a week. I never saw Kimberly sober. Never. And when she died, when she was nine on a good Friday, my husband went down with with a funeral director and, and got her and brought her back and he combed her hair and and he sat with her and I never went. Never went. I was home drinking, feeling sorry for myself. I also had a little boy that lived eight days and he died in nineteen seventy. He died of alcohol poisoning because his mother had drank 24 hours around the clock, almost when I was carrying him. 
And the doctor looked at me in the delivery room. He kicked out all the nurses, and he looked at me, and he said, I hope you're proud of yourself. And all that nine months, I had been listening, listening to alcohol tell me everything would be all right. Cunning, baffling, powerful. Jeffrey is buried next to Kimberly. It was, it was a hard thing to learn to forgive myself for that. And I was walked through it by my sponsor, by my home group. My sponsor started out by telling me, she said, you know, Beth, God, know, God knew about that. God's known everything that you've done in your life. And, and yet God chose to give you the gift of life. And if God chose, forgave you enough to give you the gift of, of life, who are you? Not to forgive yourself. And that was the starting point. And it took months and it took years. And today I, I, I feel forgiven. And I know I've been forgiven. And I'll tell you about that in a minute. My children have forgiven me. My husband forgave me. It's a lot of work. It was a lot of work. And, and I think amends. Amends are continually, you know, doing what is necessary to do in, in recovery. You know, and I, the first time I went through, you know, the steps, and then it's a continuing, a continuing thing. And, um, you know, it, it's, I was told it isn't so much how you act in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I can be wonderful in here. I can come in and shake your hand, and I can give you a hug, and I can put on her. <laughs> and, and really, and, and um, it's how I act in the supermarket when I've got three full baskets in front of me, and I'm standing there with my Millbrook bread. And that's all. I know what I want to do, but I don't do that kind of thing today, especially when they say, Woo, madam, would you like to come through? You just stand there. And nine times out of ten, there's somebody from Alcoholics Anonymous in the store. Don't kid yourself. It's like big brother and big sister. They watch you. They know every move you make. God, did you ever drive down the freeway and get behind somebody looking around like they've, they're having a, an affair with the abutment? And you can't get around. I know what I want to do with my car. And you know who drives up be, beside you? Yoo-hoo! Toot, toot. A member of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> Tell me to take it home. Treat my family like members of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I went home and I shook their hands. Hi, Mama, Beth. <laughs> I had a big and four littles. And I found out who they are. Found out who they are. My oldest child is 45 years old. And she lives with her family in a town that's about an hour away. It's called Louisville, Ohio. And uh, Annie has, has a son. God bless you. Has a son that just started um, University of Georgia. And she also uh, has a daughter Shannon that is 13 and she has a son Ryan that's 10 
I see their family once a week. Once a week. And they call me on the phone. The children. I have a daughter, Linda, that lives very close to us, about 25 minutes away. And Linda's oldest daughter was the one that walked down that aisle. And Linda also has a son that's in Texas now. And and she has a, a little girl, Cheyenne, that is five. And she has Justin, that is two and a half. And she has Jake, that is eight. I was standing at the mirror the other day. I'm going like this. Looking in the mirror, thinking, my God, you know, everything drops but drastically when you hit 70. And he said, Grandma, what are you doing? And I said, I'm just seeing, you know, if I had all this taken care of. He he looked at me and he said, Grandma, you better be careful. God might not know who you are. (laughs) My son Bruce and his wife Sandy live around the corner. Um, They have a little girl, Rachel. Uh, Bruce is uh, a fine paramedic and firefighter. And uh, Bruce didn't talk to me for the first three years I was sober. And and I whined at you about it, and you said, don't squeeze him in your hand like that. You hold him like a butterfly. If he flies away and doesn't come back, you were never meant to have him. And if he flies away and comes back, you were meant to have him all the time. But you do what you have to do. It isn't them, it's you. You were the white tornado that tore through that house. And so I kept going to his Little League games, and I kept going to his hockey games, and on one very warm July night, his eyes searched the stands and found mine, and he saluted me with a ball. And after the game was over, he said to me, Mom, it doesn't make any difference if we win or we lose as long as you're here. And I was able to sit down and explain to him about this horrific thing. He and I are terribly close today. And the little guy with the 18 and a half inch neck is is 36, and I can't get rid of him. He's still <laughs> hanging around the house. He uh, he has one of my grandchildren, Madeline. Um, he and his uh, dear girlfriend had, and they decided not to get married. And we found out a year ago that Madeline has cystic fibrosis. And if you want to learn about acceptance, you hang around a three-and-a-half-year-old who has cystic fibrosis. You hang around a three-and-a-half-year-old who has to go on a breathing machine twice a day and who has a little vest that shakes her like this, and, and she never complains. And, and she goes to play school, and she carries her, her little breathing machine with her, and twice a day in play school, she's got to put it on, and it's terrible stuff, and she doesn't really like it. But she doesn't complain. And the kids say to her, oh, how come we can't have that? And, and Madeline says, because I'm special to God. And uh, John uh, came home one day when I first, um, when I first got sober. And, and uh, he said, I, I want a sandwich. And... Uh, I didn't know how to make a sandwich. My God, I didn't know how to... I didn't boil an egg until I was nine months old. I had to learn how to dust and vacuum and do all that all over again. And so I called my sponsor and I cried on the phone. Boo, 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 You know, he wants a bologna sandwich. And, you know, and then these eyes came up over the counter with that little hat. 
And he said, I'll teach you how to make a sandwich. <laughs> so he took out the peanut butter and jelly and the bread, and he spread peanut butter on here. He says, Daddy, he says, be careful. Don't make holes or the jelly will fall through. <laughs> and he put jelly on this one. He put them together, and he said, that's a sandwich. Now you make one. <laughs> and with tears streaming down my face, I made my first sober sandwich while a seven-year-old patted me on the back and said, oh, well that's a variety. That wonderful man who hung in there and he said it was because he loved me. I didn't understand that kind of love until I came to you. And you taught me that love is giving and not asking for anything in return. And we, we, I learned all about him again. And we started, we loved Alcoholics Anonymous. And we started to go to movies and we held hands and we play live golf and we did things like that. And when I was four years sober, I heard horrible words, acute myeloid monocytic leukemia, and I felt like I'd been sucker punched in the soul. And when I walked out of his room in the hospital, there were two AAs sitting on either side. I didn't call anybody. Somebody in the hospital that was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous that had heard my story called for me. And, and uh, you were there from that moment on. And when I couldn't get out to meetings, you brought them into the kitchen. And, and you never let me alone. There was always a card in the mailbox. There was always a phone call. And, and, and you supported my family and me through that time. And, and the night before Bruce died, in, in 1978, he uh, said to me, Do you want to dance? And so I held him close, and, and I kind of had to hold him up because he was sit over six feet tall and he weighed only 103. And, and we put on an old Sinatra record. And he said to me, I want to tell you something. I never want you to forget, Bethy, that I want you to pass on. That Alcoholics Anonymous is the most wonderful thing that has ever come into our life. Not only did it save your life, but it saved all of our lives, too. And he said, pretty soon, I will be able to thank you, say thank you to the man who made it all possible. Hardest thing we ever had to do to let go of him, and we were all there together. And, and I had um, a carotid bypass in August. Not this past August, but a year ago, August. And it was a, it was a seven and a half hour operation. And, and my family was all there and three, and they left and, and, uh, three hours after, after, um, or it was about a half an hour after they left, I bottomed out. Totally. No blood pressure, no anything. And they took me immediately into emergency surgery. And when the doctor was phoning my daughter, he was scrubbing at the same time. He kept the phone on like this. And he said, Linda, call your sister and your brothers because I don't think you're ever going to see your mother alive again. And during that time, I had the needle put in the heart. And then after, and they had to tear out everything they'd done and start all over again because of a hemorrhage. But in the next, in some time, I don't know whether I dreamt it. I don't know if it really happened. But I suddenly was at a place where there was a huge blue fishing pond. And it was the bluest pond I'd ever seen. And my husband and two children, 
a little boy and a little girl were coming towards the shore. And he got out, and the children got out, and they hugged me. And they, he said to me, you know, it's not time yet. And it was like I could accept it. And, and he said, we'll be waiting for you. And I, I, don't, I don't know, as I said, if I dreamt it or, or if it was the truth. But, and he was quite a fisherman. And, and, uh, but I never felt so much forgiveness for the first time in my life in that hospital bed when I got out of, when I got out of ICU. I felt forgiveness that comes with this program. So what I say to you is just keep trudging along. Keep trudging. If you're new, stay here. Don't even be dingbat enough to keep coming back. How do you know you can get back? Just stay here. And all the, all the happiness, joy, and freedom that is promised to you in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous will be here, will be here for you. I'm going to read you this thing and then I'm going to shut up. I got this on March the 5th of this year. It's a little card and it says, We believe in the sun even when it does not shine. We believe in love even when it is not shown. We believe in God even when he does not speak. And it says, Happy Anniversary on the inside. And then it says, Mama, we thank God every day for this special day. By his grace, we were given as you a second chance at life. We love you so very much. You're a great mother, wonderful grandma, and a good friend. For 20, since 29 years ago, you have always been there for us, to guide us and to love us no matter what. We cherish you more than words can say. We probably would not have the wonderful lives we have if it was not for Alcoholics Anonymous. We have learned so much from you. Keep trudging your road. And it's signed, Annie, Linda, Bruce, and John. And I thank you for this from the bottom of my heart. Because if it wasn't for you and for this wonderful program and the grace of God, sobriety, it never would have been. And now may the road rise to meet you and the wind be always at your back and the sun shine warm upon your face and the rain fall soft upon your fields. And until we meet again. Can God, may God hold you in the palm of his hand in the nows of each day. Thank you. God bless you. Have a wonderful life. Woo!